0: (laughs) Welcome, everybody,
1: uh, to our final podcast of the B3
2: Term.
1: I'm Travis Cook-Young.
2: I'm Andrea Zellow. And I'm Natalie Copping. That's right, special
1: guest, (laughs) Natalie. Natalie. Natalie's here, winner of the Barely Available Contest. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh long-time listener, first-time uh, caster. So, thank you very much. Well,
2: thank Thanks you for going. having me. I feel I'm yeah. feeling one of the podcast's biggest fans.
1: So oh wow! Well. <laughs> like, oh, nice. Well, so it's kind of like you won a secondary grand prize.
2: Exactly.
1: Oh wow! That's exactly. that's great. So, yeah, kind of sad to reach the end of this. Uh, this. Yeah. It's the end of what do you call this? It's not the end of an era because I'm sure we'll continue to do it's the this. End the, it's the end of the season. It's the end of the
0: season. The end of the. Patio season, but we didn't really spend much time on patios because we've been cooped up in here all the time.
1: True. I mean, just to recap, though, you did start out on a patio. Yes. We did a graveyard at one point in time. That's pretty yeah. fun. Public gardens. Public
0: gardens.
1: That was a good one. So there's. There's
0: been a few good outside. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I don't think we've uh, left the patio podcasts. Inappropriately. I think we're we're doing yeah. a great job here. So that being said, we're here in H B four once again.
0: <laughs> Trying to get this done as fast as possible because like you all, we are just stressed.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, one week to uh, one week to start our final pinups. Is that right? Is it next Monday?
0: Oh, T God minus 90. six days. Yeah, okay, great. <laughs>
1: great so um yeah so we'll crank out one more of these readings to help you on thursday i'm sure thursday seminars will be very well attended (laughs) and uh and that sort of thing so um this week what are we reading?
0: a capital in exile by manuel hertz and he is a german architect no he oh well he has a practice in basel and cologne oh german and swiss um, not a whole lot about him here on the Wikipedia, but he's won some awards, published widely on Jewish architecture in Germany. Oh. Um, and he's taught at the Bartlett. Oh, interesting. interesting. I,
1: I noticed here as well. It's he's, he's credited with the words in this article, right? Which I, I think is. As opposed
0: to the plentiful photos that are also here. Yes. The photos are by Iwan bond. He's a pretty hotshot architect, isn't he?
1: Oh, I don't know. I know Shigeru Ban.
0: Oh, maybe that's I <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um,
1: but let's say yes. Let's say yes. Just an amazing architect and photographer. Um, check out their work, and uh, that'll be our final contest. Bring me, bring us, what's this person's name again? Iwan Bond. Iwan Bond. yes. Uh, bring three examples of Iwan Bond's architecture. They can be uh, photos, uh, drawings. Diagrams, whatever you have, and you will win the final prize, which it's going to be fantastic. I don't <laughs> do.
2: So. so yeah, so good luck. Yes. Can I enter for that, even though I'm here? Yeah, of course you can. <laughs> yeah, of, course you can. <laughs> yeah, of course you can.
1: Yeah, that's great. Uh, nothing from the, uh, the reading, though. You just have to be outside the, the dance. Room, so. But the prize is going to be really, really good.
0: I'm looking forward to finding out what it is. Yeah.
1: Let's just say I'm involved.
0: <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so this—I don't—I don't know. Whatever this first little blob, blob blurb is on the front says: for close to a decade, the Arctic Manual. H- H- Do you think it's hurts? Yeah. 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 Hertz. Has yeah. visited Algeria's Sahrawi re- refugee camps, home to the displaced people of Western Sahara. They make up a contemporary semi-sovereign state. Here, Hertz and the photographer Irwin Bond present their field notes about the architecture of the camps.
1: Nice, okay. I guess I'll uh, jump in and we'll just go around like that. Yeah. We left the Algerian city of Tindouf, located in the far southwest of the country in the early hours of the morning. The plane from Algiers landed in this former garrison town in the middle of the night, and we had to wait some time for the Algerian military escort to assemble before leaving the airport grounds. Driving out of the city, we pass the new university that was built to support the city's growing civilian population, as well as the nearby Sahrawi Sarawi, Sarawi Sarawi? refugee. I feel like it's going to be coming up. Uh, Sahrawi refugee community. After some time, we arrive at the location where the Algerian escort hands us over to its Sahrawi counterpart, and we proceed to the refugee camps of the Western Sahara.
2: In late October, 1975, several hundred thousand Moroccans assembled near the small southern town of Tarfaya, close to the Moroccan border, with then Spanish Sahara with yeah, then Spanish Sahara, and awaited a signal from King Hassan II of Morocco. Finally, on 6th of November, Hassan indicated that the time had come and 350,000 men and women began to march south crossing the border and initiating one of the largest civilian occupations in history, taking over Morocco's southern neighbour, Western Sahara. Just days earlier, a United Nations Commission had declared the right of the original population of that territory, the Sarwahi, Sar, Sarawis, <laughs> Sarawis? <laughs> <laughs> to self-representation and that their desire for independence should be respected. This, in the Moroccan view, was detrimental to its aim of achieving a long-held dream for a greater Morocco, a country that would include not only the territory of Western Sahara, but also large parts of Algeria, Mali, and Mauritania. Beyond the fulfillment of these expansionist aspirations, the territory of Western Sahara also promised riches in the shape of some of the world's largest phosphate deposits and the abundant fishing grounds off its coast that Morocco would later lease to the European Union. The Green March, the name given to the events of November 1975, was the first step towards this. More than 40 years on the Green
0: March, around 75% of Western Sahara remains under de facto control of Morocco, a portion of the country that is separated from the so-called liberated territories by a 2,500-kilometer long mined wall or sand berm that runs through the desert. The United Nations did not accept the Moroccan occupation and sees Western Sahara as the last colony in Africa. A referendum that should resolve the situation and which was first planned in 1992 was continuously delayed and foiled by Morocco. The Sahrawi Arab Democratic Republic, or SADR, whose independence was declared by the refugees in 1976, remains a nation without access to its territory.
1: In 2016, however, Western Sahara exhibited at the Venice Architecture Benale, adopting the Benale's typology of national pavilions. This presentation assumed, and demanded, full nationhood for Western Sahara. The pavilion exhibited a series of four carpets, weaving is one of the few crafts practiced in the camps, that were executed by the National Union of Sahrawi Women, working with groups of Sahrawi weavers. These carpets represent four major themes of the spatial and architectural history of Sarawi life. See, I knew Sarawi was going to be hot. I knew it was coming up. (laughs) I could just tell. Um, uh, Sorry, yeah, so these carpets represent four major themes of the spatial and architectural history of Sarawi life, a map of the region telling the story of the establishment of the camps, a depiction of the Sarawi tradition of public buildings, a representation of daily life, and a carpet showing the camps as political spaces. Presented within the context of the Benali, the Western Sahara Pavilion placed the Sahrawis in the center of worldwide architectural discourse for the first time. Beyond simply advocating nationhood, the Western Sahara Pavilion had also repositioned the architecture of Sahrawi refugees. Rather than examples of emergency architecture, these structures are spatial forms that deserve to be taken seriously on their own terms. Present in the Sahrawi camps is an architecture for a nation yet to come.
2: And- Oh it's not me. <laughs> it's me. <laughs> Come on, Andrea. <laughs> Entry to Camp SMARA, one of the six Sawari camps, is via a checkpoint. This is familiar in the global landscape of refugee camps. Yet the SMARA checkpoint differs in an important aspect from nearly all others worldwide. It is neither staffed by military personnel from the host nation, uh, in this case Algeria, nor by representatives of the UN High Commissioner for Refugees. UNHCR as in elsewhere as in elsewhere the case instead it is run by the refugees themselves the Swari refugee camp in the southwestern region of Algeria are some of the few such places in the world where refugees control access to their own settlements not merely an administrative detail this model points to a more significant and also unique phenomenon the semi-sovereignty that the Swari refugees have assumed and practiced within the territory of their camps.
1: So a couple of photos here on the opposite page. Mm-hmm. Um, looks pretty hot there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. looks pretty hot. Um, the top photo is... These both look kind of like checkpoints and things like that. Do you guys
0: Yeah,
2: I agree? think so. Yeah. But it's... this poor man <laughs> is standing in the shade of a very small... ...little block of plaster. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: It's like perfect size for him, though, you know what I mean? Yeah, and uh, he you can move ro- around all day long, yeah.
0: Rotates around it <laughs> Sleeps inside at night, yeah. and
1: uh, you've always got someone of the guardhouse, so... You know, it's
0: hot.
1: It, it actually yeah. says down the bottom, a Sarawi guard, or Sarawi guard sits in the shadow of the Camp Beaujour checkpoint. The entrance of the seat of the president in Sarawi administrative center camp Rabuni below reveals a building whose architecture employs a distinct symbolism. So it's actually pretty cool when you look through that, that lower photo there, this kind of uh, arches in the distance, as mm-hmm. well as the arches of the checkpoints, it almost makes a facade all into itself of some sort.
0: They love their arches, right? Oh, they, they do. the pointed arch, right. specifically.
1: Right, arches and courtyards. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So next page, littered with photos here again.
2: Oh, wow. Yeah. So many photos. Yeah, it's
1: pretty good. So, we looks like we've got, yeah, what are we?
2: Hmm. Lots of these small block, kind of mud brick buildings looking a little run down.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, but fairly permanent for mm-hmm. a refugee camp. Yeah.
1: Oh, right. That's what we're looking at here, is yeah. a refugee camp. So, that's actually pretty phenomenal. I wonder how close that is to the vernacular architecture versus when, like, FEMA or whatever comes in with all these kind of tents that are just. Yeah.
0: I mean, this, uh, yeah,
1: garbage-y plastic thing.
0: super vernacular. There's even one, oh, a goat barn yes, located on the edge of the camps. Yes, that,
1: that's kind of, I think that designer's indicative gives you a little preview of my, my B3. I was the just going to like say what? that. I was gonna say, it says yeah. it's
0: constructed as a bricolage, good word, yes. of found objects. It's yes. like, Travis, that's what you're doing for your model, isn't it? <laughs> yep. yeah. Love it. Nice. Okay. Cool. Continuing on.
1: Continuing on.
0: Um, oh, well, on the next page, the caption for the photo, there's a mom with a young girl. It says, the tent signifying temporality is a form of resistance. It employs a building typology to signal that the situation is not settled. Hmm. <laughs> Also, there's... So this is not a picture of a tent. This is... Uh, but there's, yeah, there's sort of like a... A little mud, hidden gem. A mud hut. Holy and a word. concrete block. Oh, yeah. Let's, hidden gem.
1: Yeah, there's, the there's a little hidden gem here. Okay, these things come along. <laughs> Natalie, you're disqualified from the contest and then the contest because you're so good at the same But Fair. But um, somewhere, somewhere on page 86 in the text... There's something we're gonna call the hidden gem.
0: <laughs> You'll know. When You'll you know see what it, it <laughs> is. Yeah, uh,
1: come tell us about the hidden gem, and uh, you can qualify to win uh, entry for a secondary prize that's gonna be valued at under $100. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Anyway, so the hundreds of thousands of Moroccans who entered the country on the Green March initially did not stay long, but a military occupation of Western Sahara soon followed prompting a guerrilla war between the well-equipped Moroccan army and the poorly supplied Sarawi soldiers. Simultaneously, Mauritania invaded from the south. Seeing their county, country being taken over, the non-fighting portion of the Sarawi population fled across the border into western Algeria. As Morocco had also indicated an interest in Algerian territory, the Sahrawis seemed natural allies with Algeria, which supported the refugees in their attempts to set up camp infrastructure by providing them with resources and aid. From the beginning, the Sahrawi camps have been self-determining. The UNHCR was not involved in setting them up and still plays only a marginal role in their administration, mostly coordinating donations by the international community.
1: Today, Camp Samara occupies an area of around 10 square kilometers and is inhabited roughly by 40,000 Sahrawi refugees. Once the other four residential refugee camps in Algeria are taken into consideration, uh, Dakla, el a I don't know. I always, feel, I always feel like it's natural to try and, like, throw some accent into these words. Like, that's <laughs> yeah. the worst call ever. Um, <laughs> so I try and... and I don't, as Swerd and Boudjir. Uh, Approximately 160,000 Sahrawi refugees have been living in Algeria for 40 years, but that's okay. Uh, Climbing one of the few hills in the mostly flat desert landscape, one can see Camp Samaras stretching out over the horizon. There's a relatively dense fabric of buildings, huts, and tents, all single-story structures interspersed with larger institutional facilities such as schools and administrations and denser clusters of shops and small markets. The sorority families have constructed residential compounds for themselves that often comprise a number of huts arranged around a small central open space. Constructed out of adobe bricks, they typically perform single functions, one for cooking, one for sleeping, one for drinking tea and receiving guests, and so on. Depending on the size of the financial situation of each family, these compounds consist of one or two huts, or grow to include up to seven or eight.
2: Given the long history of the camps, the fact that improvisational architecture such as tents remains in place as tents remains in place requires explanation. Hmm. Primarily, there are functional considerations. In the heat of the summer when temperatures top 50 degrees Celsius, tents provide a comfortable climate during the night as they cool quickly and allow a breeze to enter. This also reference references the nomadic tradition of the Sawaris, and hence alludes to the time before their country was lost to Morocco. Beyond these questions of culture and comfort, another reason for using tents is symbolic. They serve as an architectural signifier of the fact that the Sawari refugees have not surrendered to living in exile, but are still struggling for a return to Western Sahara. The tent, signifying temporality, is another form of resistance, insofar as it employs a building typology, to signal that the situation is not settled and expresses through architecture a political demand to return to the home country. It shows that the use of clay bricks employed in many sawari structures, for instance, is not only a technical choice but also an allusion to issues of permanence. Similarly, the fact that the interior decorations are composed of textiles such as tapestries is predicted on their movability. Every architectural element in the camps, every detail, has additional messages and meanings. They are never neutral, never innocent. Smara is subdivided into
0: six villages, which in turn are split into four neighborhoods. Even though the Sahrawi camps and villages are named after towns and cities in western Sahara, thereby constructing something akin to a shared memory inscribed on the camp territories. The inhabitants of a specific camp do not come from the respective original city in their home country. The inhabitants can, and do, move to other villages or camps if they prefer. In addition, mobile phones, Facebook, and WhatsApp mean that they can communicate with their relatives and friends living in different camps or elsewhere across the globe. As a consequence, original bonds based on a tribal structure have been replaced by a network that hybridizes, <laughs> hybridizes <laughs> traditional structures and hierarchies. The Western Sahara camp population has thus transformed into a contemporary and relatively cosmopolitan society. This is a process similar to that described by the anthropologist Lisa H. Malki in her book Purity and Exile an account of Hutu refugees dispossessed during the 1972 Burundian genocide, who subsequently lived in a township in Tanzania as opposed to a traditional refugee camp setting. Quote, Rather than defining themselves collectively as the Hutu refugees, they tended to seek ways of assimilating and of inhabiting multiple shifting identities. Those in town were creating not heroic heroized heroized, heroized? Oh, yeah national identity but rather a lively cosmopolitanism it's very interesting
1: this idea of displacement and this refusal of accepting that this is where we are now you mm-hmm. know what i mean and kind of going back and so like one side of this that's that's crazy that it's been going for 40 years to me, that the, you know that sort of thing. So, at what point in time do you, or like how many generations after this displacement yeah. does the ownership then go to this place you've been displaced to? Like, I know essentially never, right? But there must be some sort of sense of belonging for people who've been born yeah, in like, these places, right? It's like, you know,
0: that's your hometown. Yeah. It's this refugee camp.
1: Yeah. So, and I like how. People are still like, it's called a refugee camp, but I think, um, you know, once you're wealthy enough to have eight of these houses within the refugee camp, it's more of like, I don't know, something, there seems to be something a little bit more permanent to me when yeah. you made the choice to like, be like camp rich or whatever you know what I mean like I don't
2: know (laughs) I think they mentioned earlier they I think they did refer to it as a refugee settlement and I wonder at what point though there is that shift where it's yeah it's no longer a camp it's a settlement Mm, and um you know I mean really I think the only obvious um difference is the permanence of the structures and so that shift between kind of tents and shanty towns Mm. to using like mud brick but again Mm -hmm. that could just be a climate related right like like tectonic
1: stereotonic almost like qualifying (laughs) one as being permanent and one is being temporary yeah
2: Yeah. so it's interesting question
1: it is so on the following pages here we've got some lovely pictures of these settlements here and just kind of some of the structures um, as well as the shops that exist here as well
0: yeah like this grocery store looks like you know it's a real grocery store.
1: It's a real grocery store. I have to
0: say, I really love all the blue and white. I know that's it's quite nice. beautiful. Yeah. yeah <laughs> the,
2: the
1: murals. It is it's really nice. Cool.
0: It's like the blue of the sky with the blue of the doors and the white buildings and the white experience. sand. It's it's quite nice.
1: And the person in the <laughs> store looks to be keeping it pretty cool. <laughs> in there, they don't seem to be too <laughs> uncomfortable to be. Oh yeah. Time.
0: There's this one. It looks like a shipping container <laughs> or like a truck. What do you call those? The big thing.
1: Yeah, like a friend. big eighteen wheel. Like a yeah, this thing's still in a container. Right? Yeah, yeah, but
0: it has it has a painting. Oh, maybe this is the next hidden gem. Hidden <laughs> <laughs> gem. Yeah.
1: Okay, so there's a painting. <laughs> um, if you can bring us the translation of what this painting is trying to represent, you know, that's part two of the secret gift. Entry. Yeah, I
0: think it's a, it's a professional that works inside of this. Container, it's true. Which is interesting.
1: It's true. Seemingly, uh, yeah, that's looking kind of like a gross thing there as well. <laughs> anyway. So we've got that. So very interesting. Um, I'll also point out in one of the pictures of these um, shops, there's even like an ad for Coca-Cola or not an ad, I guess, but there's the Coca-Cola branding on the outside and things like that. Mm-hmm. So it's um, modern products uh, in these places. So It's kind of interesting. Moving on. I think it's you. It is, yes. Um, each village in Samara is preserved by a school, a community center, and a market area where foodstuffs, clothing, tools, and small appliances can be bought, and mobile phones can be topped up. Each of the uh, Sarawi camps also features a hospital and a maternity clinic. School attendance is compulsory and free for all children and young adults. The level of education is comparatively high, with literacy estimated 90%. By contrast, UNICEF, UNICEF estimates that adult literacy in Morocco stands at just the 67%. So, that's, uh, that's a pretty good case for education in these places. Uh, in addition, the health system, managed and implemented by the Sarawis themselves, is well developed. Uh, conversations with local Sahrawi doctors point to a life expectancy higher than 70 years, which is the average life in Morocco and Algeria. Uh, all the same, This does not mean that living in the camps is easy. Most families are dependent on food aid. The World Food Program provides 125,000 basic dry food rations per month. Furthermore, heavy flooding in 2015 damaged 17,000 houses and 60% of the community infrastructure, which has to be painstakingly rebuilt.
2: The camp schools, clinics and community centers do not only perform a utilitarian function, but have also developed into social spaces, meeting points where people come together to play, enjoy, talk and exchange. Their architecture is remarkable. Valencia School, named after the city that funded it in Smara, has an asymmetrical triangular floor plan with rounded corners in an unusual Uh, It is an unusual shape, but one that has the benefit of preventing sand from piling up along its sides. The school is a conglomeration of several buildings consisting of classrooms, utility rooms, and and an open-air auditorium, all arranged around a central courtyard that is used for communal events, sports, and recreation. A group of rooms at one of the rounded corners features domed ceilings, while the classrooms alongside the long edges of the triangle have a pitched roof. The architecture is surprisingly rich, with varying interior and exterior spaces that have their own distinct qualities. Together, they make a fascinating whole that is neither traditional nor generic modern, but is highly specific to the location. While Valencia's school was originally located off-center from its camp neighborhood, it has now attracted new family compounds that have been erected in its vicinity. This is a dynamic fami- a dyna- dynamic familiar from m- any contemporary city. Good schools act as engines of urban development, drawing families to them. Through such transformations, the camps have become repositories for the S- Sarawis' efforts to carve out their own spaces in exile and to tell the story of how the refugees used the camps as spaces of emancipation. The French urban anthropologist Michel Agiere seminal 2002 essay Between War and City has had a substantial impact on the debate about the relationship between camps and towns. Agier describes the camp as a place that even when stabilized, quote sorry, quote, even when stabilized remains a stunted city to be made, by definition naked, end quote. Asking himself why that transition to a polis as a political space is not complete, Agier describes the lack of political recognition and agency as the main cause. It is exactly here that the Sarawi camps offer a paradigm that perhaps fulfills the transition to an urban space.
0: Nowhere does this notion of using the camp spaces as a materialization of self-governance become more evident than the, in the case of Rabouni, a camp 32 kilometers east of Smara that serves as an administrative center for the Surari refugees in Algeria. The camp's infrastructure, however, does not initially suggest this significance. The center of Rabouni is marked by a large parking lot come bus stand, which is surrounded by a myriad car repair businesses, improvised petrol stations, and shops selling everything from groceries to clothes to building materials. The service stations look as if they have they have accumulated the leftovers and spare parts of enough vehicles and other paraphernalia to begin to take on a life of their own the vehicles mostly aging land rovers from the 1950s and 60s have seen so many repairs that they seem like moving or depending on the state of decay immobile bricolage on top of this the hot desert wind covers everything in a fine layer of sand
1: North of this area of Rebuni, however, lies a large compound enclosed with a giraffe-patterned wall.
0: <laughs> I was just wondering what that <laughs> photo <laughs> was.
1: Yeah, I, I actually read it as giraffe-powered at the <laughs> but, Whoa, what a wall. Uh, the Ministry of Defense of the Sarawi government... Oh, sorry, okay. So, the wall is for the Ministry of Defense of the Sarawi government. Uh, this is not the only governmental institution in Rabuni. In fact, the urban landscape is dotted with all the ministries that also make up any other national government of recognized nation states. As with the other structures in the camps, all of these institutions <coughs> are single floor compounds, albeit built out of cement bricks and covered in cement plaster to withstand the very rare, but very heavy, rains and frequent sandstorms. I know we had some pictures there, but did I like skip over Does that make sense?
2: You did skip over. Can we talk about the pictures?
1: Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah let's yeah. talk about them.
2: Yeah, so this graph wall, you guys.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
2: I don't know cool.
0: if it's just painted or if it, it looks like a, some kind of mosaic, except that the pieces are huge they kind are of thing. They're
1: cool. not. Okay, no. <laughs> What?
2: <laughs>
0: okay. I wonder how they make
2: that. Yeah, I don't know. Like, would it be done like, as mosaic? Or, you know, it'd be cool is if you could just put the, um, like, you could paint them with that sort of fireable paint that you use in pottery making, and that'd be so hot there that they would yeah, actually just it fire it. would, just it with like, glaze itself, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That'd be cool. That would be. What
0: else have we got? We've got a picture of it looks like a hospital. Mm-hmm.
1: It'd be um, great if the giraffe wall is painted by giraffes. You know what I mean? How elephants can paint stuff?
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, but
1: just had to ask. Um yeah, so this looks like the hospital here. Urgent medical attention. Interesting procession there they've got of these uh kind of brickwork leading up to things here as well.
2: I also like the um there seems to be some style of painting the walls a different color halfway up mm, so yeah. that there, it's blue halfway up until halfway up the wall inside and then on the outside there's two shades of brown right. and like then it. there's another one that's grey at the bottom and then brown and again blue matches the sky
1: Ooh. Oh, I love the blue love it. I love it as well yeah. um, interesting just comment there too how schools seem to be the hubs of these communities they were saying like these good schools yeah. start these good places and stuff like that interesting to think that we go back to thinking schools being built like prisons. Like, are prisons really the center of communities? Is that the idea? Like, places. No. <laughs> I, I don't
0: think that's the idea.
1: No. Okay,
0: where are we here?
1: We are. I, am, I was in the middle of reading here. Sorry, everybody. had to go over those pictures. I love them. I'll start at the top of the next page. Okay. <laughs> um, oh, but there's more pictures here. <laughs> um, so we'll talk about those really quick. It looks like quite this rebuilding effort going on here. Mm-hmm. Um, falling torrential rains of autumn 2015. So oh, yeah, wow. so pick it up with air with very rare but very heavy rains, like those of 2015, and frequent sandstorms. Being single-story, these buildings occupy large swaths of ground. Their low profile does not allow for any grand symbolic gestures, and in general, they are relatively unpretentious and functional. Nevertheless, a certain unconventionality marks their appearance. Further to the west, for instance, lies the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, whose cross-shaped floor plans look like it was lifted directly from the Swiss flag. To the east of the large compound of the National Hospital, located next to the Ministry of Public Health, just a few hundred meters further is the Ministry of Construction and Development, a building whose symmetrical layout is marked by four main corner rooms that are each roofed by prominent domes, giving it a feeling of a wedding cake. (laughs) (laughs)
2: The Sarawi refugees are the only refugees worldwide who self-govern and who have achieved semi-sovereignty in their camps. They have built up their own system of administration and political representation, such that Rabuni can be understood as the capital of a nation in exile. It is here in this camp that the new curricula for schools are put together. Decisions for public health are taken, cultural policies are devised, and new codes of law are written. Instead of being another example of a humanitarian space with the typical presence of a dominant NGO culture, Rabuni testifies to the Sarawi refugees' of self-reliance. They set their own rules. With Rabuni, the camps are consciously used by the Sarawis as a political project, and through them they are developing expertise in running a country. Though still in exile, they are using their time in the camps to prepare themselves for the nation to come. In this sense, the Sarari refugees add complexity to a distinction set up by the Italian philosopher philosopher Giorgio Agamben in his 1993 text, Beyond Human Rights, in which the figure of the refugee was deployed to argue that when we speak of human rights, we actually speak of citizens' rights, precisely, quote, Precisely the figure that should have embodied human rights more than any other, namely the refugee, marks instead the radical crisis of the concept, noted Agamben. Uh, Another quote, in the system of the nation state, he continued, so-called sacred and inalienable human rights are revealed to be without any protection precisely when it is no longer possible to conceive of them as rights of the citizen of a state, end quote. In Rabouni, however, the categories of citizen-refugees seem to draw closer together.
0: Beyond its political dimension, Rabouni introduces something we typically do not consider when thinking about refugee camps, everyday life. In the morning, hundreds of ministry employees arrive to work, having traveled the 10 kilometers or so from the residential camps, such as bourges dor by either public bus or with one of the private taxis that offer their services for a few dinar. People work in their offices, go for lunch over midday and in the evening return home, again by bus or taxi. This ordinary routine shared by billions worldwide is significant precisely because it is quotidian. We imagine refugee camps to be places of extremes, settlements that are constructed to save lives Sites that are mainly about providing enough food and water to ensure survival and possibly prevent suffering. Facilities intended to put dispossessed people out of the line of fire. In our imagination, the everyday has no place there. The exceptional quality of the camp is acknowledged by the UNHCR, whose 2014 policy on alternatives to camps states that uh, states that camps are meant to be of temporary use and should only be employed as a measure of last resort. The philosopher Adi Ophir, however, shows in his 2011 essay, The Politics of Catastrophization, that representing an exceptional situation solely without, within the frame of suffering and violence is not only one of personal bias, but carries a distinct agenda. Quote, Declaring a state of emergency has always pre- presupposed some sense of catastrophization, false, imagery, imaginary, virtual, sincere, or realistic, and should be understood in its context, quote. The Sarawari camps, by contrast, show us not only that these mundane activities of everyday life exist in refugee settlements, but also how important they are.
1: Refugee camps are regularly conceived of and described as spaces of exception. In Agamben's 1995 book, Homo Sacer... Homo Sacer? Saker? Saker? Homo
0: Saker? I don't know.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Sovereign Power and Bare Life, he writes, quote, The camp is mission, the structure in which the state of exception, the possibility of deciding on which found sovereign power, is realized normally... This is why in the camp, the ques, questio? Oh my goodness. Practice your <laughs> <are laughs> Latin here. <laughs> yeah, questio urrisis. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like more accents, inappropriate. Uh, if we look carefully, no longer strictly distinguishable from the questo facti, and in this sense, every question concerning the legality or illegality of what happened there simply makes no sense. The camp is a hybrid of law and fact in which two terms have become indistinguishable. End quote. M-, Ag- M. Ben is, at least initially, specifically discussing the concentration camps of Nazi Germany, spaces that demonstrated their inmates' reduction to bear life clearly and violently. However, he moves on to identify this logic of power and other spatial manifestations of control. Quote, the camp of as dislocating localization is the hidden matrix of the politics in which we are still living, and is this structure of the camp that we must learn to recognize in all its metamorphosis into the zones of Mm detente, of our airports, and certain outskirts of our cities, quote.
2: Agamben's argument has had a profound influence upon architectural and urbanistic discourse. Camps are seen as spaces of ultimate control, where the movement of people is restricted, where personal development and freedom of expression is restrained and where political engagement by the population is prohibited. Camps are viewed as not only homogenous in their bareness, but homogenizing in the way in which they reduce their inhabitants to their basic physical needs. Whereas the city is understood to be a cosmopolitan space of heterogeneity uh, that uplifts allows for a multitude of connections enables political engagement and lets its citizens create new and multiple identities the camp is a space of waiting that reduces interactions and works against difference camps are seen as the antithesis of the city and of urban space the
0: problem with this position is that it has been it it has the nature of a self-fulfilling prophecy it reduces refugees to passive recipients of aid and prevents spaces of emancipation or cosmopolitanism from developing in camps by permanently inscribing the notion of emergency into the camp fabric. The production of space, political subject- <laughs> subjectification, and folding polar And folding... Oh my gosh, you guys. And the folding of polarity. The case of... this <laughs> <Dennis, laughs> Camp <laughs> Palestine... <laughs> that's the title of a 2012 essay by the architect (laughs) Sandy Hilal and academic Nasser Abourami argues that the simple juxtaposition of the seeming polarities of city and camp fails to understand the potential of the camp as a space to speak politically and to confront a colonial occupation. Quote, the point then is not to think of refugees as existing in a static in-between as stuck in liminal tension between antinomies or irreconcilable dichotomies, but to recognize them as acting and speaking politically at a series of intersections between inside and outside. End quote. In contrast to the dominant notion of the camp as the antithesis of the city, and in the spirit of Halal and Aburami's argument, the case study of the Sarari settlements gives us evidence that a completely different kind of settlement can exist. The Sarari camps are places in which inhabitants are in charge of their lives, at least to the extent possible during the occupation of their home country. They are spaces that have given risen to a novel system of administration and new social patterns where nomadic traditions have transformed into modern concepts of family structures and new identities have been created.
1: In stark contrast to the common conception their refugee camps are not spaces where politics is desired, the Sarawi camps both facilitate and promote politics. Not only is the Sarawi population encouraged to engage in political matters, but the camps themselves are seen and used as political projects in their anticipation of the Sarawi nation-state of Western Sahara. The Sarawi camps, therefore, give us proof of the camp as a form of urban space. At a time when areas of control and surveillance are multiplying in our cities, where gated communities and corporate compounds encroach more and more on public and political interaction, the opposition of the urban-conditioned camp spaces becomes less valid. Perhaps the Sarawak camps might even represent a spatial quality that is more urban than many cities.
2: End. End. <laughs>
1: uh, which is so true. It's interesting to learn about these things, When and I am absolutely guilty of what they're talking about at uh, at kind of in the closing of this reading. When I think of refugee camp, when I think of camp well, you're more familiar with my desires about camping. <laughs> camping in general is kind of a bad word for me. <laughs> but um but yeah, no, I, I just always assume that there are these horrible places that are just like at the very edge of existence and uh and they're as temporal as they can possibly be, you know, but it seems like this one's been further established by the people's desire to thrive and, and not give up on this original idea of receiving, like going back, of returning, you know.
0: Yeah, I do kind of question though whether, like, will they ever get to go back to?
1: Right. Is there a back? Is there a back to actually will go to? Yeah.
0: Place.
2: I don't know. Yeah, it's a tough one, and I think um, something that's interesting about this is, you know, we're saying here's one group of refugees who become pretty established in where they're at and so they've formed a more permanent settlement um, out of necessity and i guess we want to view refugees as temporary because there is that assumption that they're going to go back to wherever they're originally from right. but i think in so many conflicts around the world right now and i mean we're at a global peak for refugees ever are we okay yeah. there've yeah. never been this many refugees like there are there are tens of millions of people who are Mm. refugees all around the world and so much of the time um, it's i mean many of the places where they come from are highly populated and it's not as if there's a void of people there and so to send even more people back to a place that is sort of filled in a population in their absence it almost makes you wonder if in some places these camps becoming permanent settlements is simply just the birth of new communities to accommodate right, yeah. so many people yeah. in yeah. that region. So it's, I don't know, it's an interesting point about whether, I guess just conflict by conflict, it depends on, you know, whether it's going to end or not, whether right. people are going to go back. Well, it seems like
1: this one, we didn't really talk on, remember the very beginning, I apologize, I don't recall exactly, but we didn't really talk about why this displacement occurred, just that this displacement has occurred and this is what's happening at this mm-hmm. place or whatever, right? Um, yeah, and I think as far as these things go, like, just seeing pictures of this hospital or, like, um, you know, these businesses, like these, uh, these mechanics or junkyards and things like that, like, I would really like to see kind of a uh, zoo, like, you know, 10,000-foot view, a plan of these settlements. I'd like mm-hmm. to actually see what these looks like. So I'm a little disappointed there isn't that picture in there. Maybe I will... Do a little searching on my own. Check that
0: out. <laughs> maybe you should just draw the plan for us. Yeah, you know what? I'll uh, with, with all that spare time you have.
1: Maybe that's gonna be the prize. Just do a little
0: nobly map.
1: Of the, yeah, I'll do a nobly of map of public and private. <laughs> yeah, um, but I, in either case, uh, this reading really surprised me to consider all of this um, infrastructure and everything still in a camp type settlement, not necessarily in a permanent town settlement. Mm-hmm. So, and I, and I guess the refugee status really relates back to the people's feelings of this not being their actual home. Yeah. Yeah, so it's kind of new.
2: One thing I would just point out that I think is really interesting is to think about at what point does a settlement um, become permanent enough to have architecture? Because I think a lot of the time we think of architecture as being a fairly permanent thing that you would not necessarily put up in somewhere where people in a campsite that you're then going to move, and so it begs that question of you know how long is long enough that people have been there that they deserve to have these sort of more permanent facilities and and quality architecture to support their community
1: right and even not even just like considering where they can have them but considering the ones that are there already as being permanent Mm -hmm. even if they were intended on being temporary it's good reading this week
2: Mm. I like this one It's kind of a neat wrap-up, too, to give it more of a global,
1: like a global, you know, bring up a global issue and talk about how architecture relates to that. I like it. So anything
0: else for our final podcast of B3? I don't know. It's been a a real treat.
1: It has been. Thank you uh, to listeners like yourself, Natalie. Yeah. We've enjoyed doing this bad boy, and uh, it's definitely not over. It's just the end of a season, not the end of an era.
0: Stay tuned, yeah some special episodes coming up yes
1: yeah because i mean realistically we're looking at b5 to return (laughs) for any sort of history stuff um but uh yeah i'm sure if anything comes up over our free lab time we'll post it up in the academy and uh yeah get to enjoy it all those things so until then i'm travis cook young i'm andrea Zillow.
2: i'm natalie coffee
1: thank you so much for listening oh i forgot to record (laughs) <laughs> I am.
2: I <laughs>